an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the landmark Bolt decision of 1974 comes to life with Judge Bolt's judicial robes. These are the judicial robes of Judge George Bolt, and I want you to be the one to carry them into the archives. And then, from the archives, when the USS Constitution spent the summer in Puget Sound. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And now time for our resident historian, Felix Bennell, joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind the names of local places. This week, a mysterious headstone from the 1880s that was found recently in Pierce County is the focus of a special reunion ceremony tomorrow in Buckley, Felix. Good morning, Hannah. Yeah, there's a lot to this story, which I first read about in the Edomclaw Courier-Herald. Last fall in Bonnie Lake, a guy named Dustin Bacchetti found a simple but ornate marble headstone laying, just laying on the ground in the woods near his home. Stood upright, it's about two feet tall and has a carved lamb at the top. I've got a picture of it on my Twitter feed. The name on the headstone is Daisy Kirtley, who was born in 1878 and died in 1886 when she was not quite eight years old. It's pretty sad. It says the names of her parents and the words, Rest, little Daisy, in happiness rest. Mingling with angels, we know thou art blessed. So word of the discovery spread on social media, and several people in the area began trying to figure out the origins of the headstone. It was truly a group effort. I spoke with one of the history sleuths, a guy named Shane Riley, who also works for the Army Corps of Engineers at Mud Mountain Dam. He credited the many people involved in tracking down the facts, and then he told me the knowns and the unknowns. So members of the Kirtley family were in this area as early as 1853. They were part of one of the early wagon trains to come over the treacherous Natchez Trail, which Daisy's future uncle, Whitford Kirtley, had actually helped build. The family also spent time back in Missouri, which is where Daisy was born in 1878. In 1885, her parents homesteaded right in the middle of what's now Lake Taps. Now, I knew Lake Taps was an artificial lake that had been built you know, about 100 or so years ago, but I didn't know it's actually made up of four smaller lakes, one that was called Taps, but also Crawford Lake, Church Lake, and Kirtley Lake, which is named for Daisy's family. Now, we don't know why Daisy died. But the theory is she was buried near Kirtley Lake, and her grave there was marked with a recently found headstone. But the Kirtley family moved closer to Buckley around 1900, and the homestead, the place where Daisy is likely still buried, was flooded after 1909 when the larger lakes, Lake Taps was created as part of a hydropower project. So we also don't know when the headstone was moved, or where it was for the last 112 years. That's a really a big mystery. Or why it was found not only many miles from its original location on the bottom of Lake Taps, but also many miles from where the Kirtleys had moved to Buckley back in 1900. We'll probably never know the answer to those questions. But there is something of a happy ending to all this. As it turns out, much of Daisy's family, including her parents, James and Mary, and her brothers, Blueford and Fleming, are buried in the Buckley Cemetery. You know, they had moved to Buckley in 1900. And now, thanks to the efforts of a bunch of people down in that area, the Weeks Funeral Home in Buckley, the Greater Bonnie Lake Historical Society, and the Foothills Historical Museum, Daisy's headstone will be formally re reunited with her family. They're going to set it in stone next to a marker for her and her other family members. And this is all going to happen tomorrow, that's Saturday at 10 o'clock at the Buckley Cemetery. It's open to the public. 
And now Shane Riley, you know, his contribution to this, he figured out that the, the Kirtley family had been involved with the Natchez Trail, which is, you know, it's, it's one of these efforts to bring wagons over the mountains. It was a very treacherous route. Didn't up, it didn't end up being as popular as other easier ways to get across the Cascades. But he also tracked down several of Daisy Kirtley's uh, descendants. There's some great grandnieces that still live in the area. And at least two of them are going to be at the ceremony tomorrow in Buckley. Now, it's unfortunate it's going to be so hot tomorrow. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I might consider getting the car and driving down there because it's, it's, it's so strange that this headstone just turned up in the woods. Um, who knows where it has been, whether somebody had it and just dumped it out there or it was actually uncovered by, some, by something we don't know about. But the fact these people at the funeral home and the people at the historical societies are willing to put in the effort and put together this little ceremony and actually formally rededicate this thing and reunite if not the grave and the remains, at least the headstone of young Daisy Kirtley with her family members who were there at the Buckley Cemetery. That's an amazing story, Felix. What do you think happened? Oh, boy. You know, there's there, one theory is that maybe some construction in the area turned this up and the stuff just someone thought, oh, let's just put this in the woods because we don't know what to do. We don't <laughs> want to go through official channels. Wow. There's there's a lot of uh, not exactly controversy, but people down in the Buckley and Bonnie Lake and uh, Lake Taps area are very ex ah, they're very interested in this story because it, it says a lot about the early settlement of that area and how we treat the remains and how we remember the history and keep the stories alive. And when there's an artifact like this, it just brings stirs up so much. I mean, it's. It's, it's a perfect example, and the fact it can be rededicated and put next to the family members' headstones, that's, that's a nice, probably the happiest ending possible, given so many unknowns. Northwest skies will be sunny. Seattle's Morning News with Dave Ross. I'm Colleen O'Brien. You just heard Chris Sullivan. Felix Bunnell joining us now. The Bolt decision, a 1974 ruling handed down by federal judge George Bolt, restored fishing rights to tribes in Washington state based on treaties signed in the 1850s. So our resident historian Felix Bunnell is here with a story about a pair of distinctive judicial artifacts recently donated by the late judge's family. By the way, Felix is brought to us by the Lake Washington windows and doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Colleen. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of voices in this story because the Bolt decision still resonates with a lot of people. The decision is named for Judge George Bolt. He presided over the case. This was when the federal government sued the state of Washington on behalf of tribes. You know, it was controversial at the time, and it was in some ways the legal culmination of decades, even close to a century of struggle and conflict. It changed the way fisheries were managed in Washington, it forced the state government to recognize tribal fishing rights and tribal sovereignty, and essentially split the annual fisheries harvest evenly between tribes and the non-tribal sport and commercial fishery community. Now, Teresa Trebon is archivist for the Swinomish Indian Tribal Community near Laconner. She was doing some research last summer in the Bolt decision, and tribal reverence for Judge Bolt came up in a conversation with a former Swinomish chairman. I mean, if you were to ask anybody, any tribal member, you know, what that decision meant, they would equate it with their fishing rights for sure. But in terms of the significance and just how monumental it was for him to, to decide that tribes were indeed entitled to their usual and accustomed harvest of salmon and shellfish was astounding, was astounding. And, and um, I don't think there's very many people in Washington that probably understand that. You know, as part of her research, Teresa Trebon decided to try and connect with Judge Bolt's family. Now, he passed away a long time ago, back in 1984 at age 80. But she found that one of his daughters lives in Edmonds. Her name is Virginia Bolt Readinger. Now, Virginia Readinger told me she believes her father didn't anticipate just how controversial the decision would be. 
He knew it would be significant to divide the catch 50-50 between the tribes and everyone else, but he just didn't realize just how much controversy it would generate. She says in the wake of the verdict, her father was hung in effigy. He got a lot of violent threats and tons of hate mail. But he kind of took it in stride and kind of got a kick out of it. Oh, I shouldn't say that exactly, but he did laugh about it, some of it. Um, and um, But he never, ever felt that he had made the wrong decision. I think he spent a lot of time on that particular decision, um, trying to determine what was meant by the language of the treaties. You know, in those treaties, they go back to the 1850s. Isaac Stevens, who was our territorial governor and who was also the superintendent of Indian Affairs for Washington, he, you know, sort of notoriously went around, quote unquote, negotiating these treaties. And there's one sentence in, in all the documents that were signed, um, in all those treaties in particular, that's often cited. It goes like this, quote, the right of taking fish at all usual and accustomed grounds and stations is further secured to said Indians in common with all citizens of the territory. And that's that's the sentence, kind of that the whole Bolt decision sort of that was the crux of it. And the judge took uh, there were hundreds of witnesses, you know, thousands of pages of documents. He really spent several years studying all that. Huh. Um, very it sounds carefully. pretty straightforward to me, Felix. That sentence. Yeah, but it's you know you have momentum and you have sort of decades of uh, ignoring that part of the treaty, mm. and the treaties were in, in a sense sort of. Um, just kind of glossed over. It was a very different world, and it took years of protest to get to this federal case. You know, the federal government suing the state. That doesn't happen all the time. Now, Virginia Readinger has a lot of her father's papers from that study. But decades ago, her mother also gave her two of Judge Bolt's judicial robes, which she kept in the garage. In our family, we have some children and grandchildren that are lawyers, but nobody really knew what, you know, they didn't want them, they didn't know what to do with them. And so when Teresa had reached out to me about my dad's stuff, I asked her, I said, would you want his robes? I have two robes. And she said, oh, I'd love them. You know, and these are black robes that are made for choir singers. It says right on the label something like academic church and choir. <laughs> and I looked, you can buy new ones online for about 20 bucks. <laughs> and yet the tradition of judges wearing black robes goes back to the uh, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall, who wore one to his swearing-in back in February 1801. Now, much more recently... Teresa Trebon went to Edmonds and picked up the two robes and drove them back to the Swinomish archives in Laconer. She parked her car, then she called Swinomish tribal chairman Steve Edwards and asked him to meet her at the archives. I met him outside the building and he goes, what's up? And I, I went over to my car and I took out the robes and I said, these are the judicial robes of Judge George Bolt and I want you to be the one to carry them into the archives. You know, he, of course, said yes. He's a fisherman. His father's a fisherman. It's a big tradition with the tribe. As a student at LaConnor High School in the spring of 1974, Steve Edwards even wrote a paper about the Bolt decision and what it meant to Washington tribes. How did it feel to carry Judge Bolt's robes into the archive? How awesome and, and blessed am I to be packing a piece of history? Never in my wildest dream would I ever thought that I would be packing a robe of a judge who changed our lives forever. You know, and so there's two robes, and Teresa Trebon got to thinking that one of them should be shared with an appropriate institution. That's when she called Margaret Weatherby, head of collections at the Washington State Historical Society in Tacoma. Honestly, when Teresa called to ask me if we could do this, like, we both cried because it was, it's a, it was a big moment for the tribe. And we realize the importance of that, and we really want to respect that. It was a really big deal that a tribe thought of us as a repository. 
And so last month, Teresa was once again in her car with the judicial robe, only one this time, not two. And this time she drove it to the Washington State Historical Society in Tacoma. Margaret Weatherby was there and the society's director, Jennifer Kilmer, and they had a sort of welcoming ceremony for this very special artifact. They had an asset-free box waiting for the robe to go into it, and um, just, it, it was an amazing gathering. I, I've been a historian for over 40 years, and I've never quite had a, a welcoming like that for something I've been involved in. And what I like about the story, I mean, the Bolt decision, it's very complex. It's hundreds of pages long, and there's thousands of documents. I mean, you, you, could, you could focus on and study it for years. But Bolt, kind of, the judge gets kind of lost in the story in some ways, and it, this sort of humanizes him to have these robes. Um, this, looking at them, you see his initials are embroidered onto the label and stuff. It's just sort of, uh, I don't know, makes you realize that this was just a person doing his job. Right. The other thing I like, the artifact is handled with so much reverence and ceremony. Yeah. That's unusual in my experience you know, as a museum guy 20 years ago. I mean, I remember driving back from Spokane with a trunk full of Bing Crosby artifacts I borrowed from Gonzaga <laughs> for a Mohai Christmas exhibit. We didn't have a welcoming ceremony, or there was no. Rever- I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't abuse the artifacts, but there right. was nothing. There was no reverence like that, or you know, when we carried them into the building or anything like that. Well, the fishing so, rights are I, just so you know special and and uh, to tribes, right? That this was, yeah. When he says carrying the robe of the man who changed the course of our lives, he means it, and that's absolutely yeah, quite yeah, and that. And that you, the Bolt decision, you, it was almost like it sounds like it's one word. You say it so quickly together. And back in the 1970s, this was just a huge deal, and it still is because it's just it's it redefined things that should have been a certain way for a hundred years and kind of set the course for a future for tribes and how they relate to local governments. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, that time in the 1930s when the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, spent a memorable summer in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, better that her shattered hulk should sink beneath the wave. Her thunders shook the mighty deep, and there should be her grave. Nailed to the mast, her holy flag, set every threadbare sail, and give her to the god of storms, the lightning, and the gale. In 1797, the area we're currently broadcasting was practically untouched by Europeans, but on the other side of the country... They were launching a warship that is still floating today and even made a trip out to the Northwest. Historian Felix Benell is with us for his Wednesday visit brought to us by the King County Library System. Yeah, it was 85 years ago this week when Constitution came to the Pacific Northwest and spent about three months visiting ports all over Washington and Oregon. The ship was built in the 1790s, and it didn't sail in 1933. It was towed around by a Navy minesweeper. And the reason the ship came here, the reason the Constitution toured all over the coastal U.S. in the early 30s was to thank the millions of school kids who raised million, well, about $154,000 all in pennies. This is early old school crowdfunding, Dave. Uh, and they helped restore the ship in the late 1920s, and the Navy sent it around the country to thank all those kids. So it was a huge deal to have the ship here and a big boost to the national morale. It was during the Great Depression, the darkest days, right, in the early 1930s, 1933. To help understand why the vessel is so significant, I spoke to Tyrone Martin. He's a commander, U.S. Navy, retired. He's 88 years old and lives in North Carolina. He was the 49th captain of the Constitution during the bicentennial 40 years ago, even welcomed Queen Elizabeth aboard. He's also written a number of books about the ship. Well, she fits near the top because during the War of 1812, uh, she fought a number of battles and won them all, and during the course of which she got the nickname Old Ironsides because 
although she didn't have iron sides, uh, the enemy cannonballs were seen to bounce off her heavy oak hull. <laughs> and by the, by the end of the war, it was being publicly proposed that she be preserved forever. And we're, we're, still, we're still trying. Yeah. It's a wooden vessel, so you're always trying to preserve a wooden ship like that. And it doesn't leave the dock in Boston much anymore. It did sail for its 200th birthday back in 1997. I also talked to the museum there in Boston to find out some background about the tour. And there's some surprising Northwest connections to the ship. Like, for instance, uh, the West Coast Lumberman's Association donated five carloads of Douglas fir from Oregon and Washington for spars and masts that were used to outfit the ship back in the late 1920s. And the historian I talked to there is uh, named Sarah Watkins. Many years ago, she actually interviewed several members of the crew who went on that national tour and who visited the Northwest and who now, of course, are all deceased. One crew member particularly stood out, a Marine named Otto Campson. Sarah Watkins told me about the life-changing moment that happened to Otto right there at the gangway of the Constitution one afternoon while the ship was visiting Everett 85 years ago. As a Marine, they had wonderful uniform, and he'd stand at the gangway, and there was a church group that came to visit, and a little girl came up to Otto, who was counting people in and welcoming people aboard, and the little girl said, "Um, may I have your autograph? Because these were rock stars. They wanted to come meet people, and Otto said, sure, if you tell me who that beautiful young lady is. And the little girl replied, that's easy, that's my sister. So her sister had brought the Sunday school group to visit the ship, and Otto and um, Blanche from Everett, Washington, fell in love within the time that that the the ship was visiting there, and then they were married a month later, and they were together for over 70 years. Those crazy kids. Um, (laughs) One more fascinating Northwest connection to the Constitution that came about because of this visit. Um, When the ship was in Grays Harbor in May 1933, some local person in Aberdeen, I haven't identified him or her yet, presented the crew with a black bear cub. The minesweeper had a monkey aboard, so maybe adding a bear cub made sense. Anyhow, the crew named the bear cub Commodore Scrappy. Uh, Sarah Watkins says that Scrappy loved condensed milk, he loved taking long naps on the sunny deck, and he loved to swim. We have pictures at My Northwest, of course. Now, remember Otto Campson? It turns out Otto and Scrappy were particularly close. Otto told us that he used to like to spar with Scrappy, and Scrappy never hurt him. But, of course, the the little bear cub is going to continue to grow. And so as the cub turned into an adult bear, he became stronger. And then in sparring with one of the officers of Grebe, the bear ended up taking a swipe out of the officer. And at that point in the, the national cruise, the ship was in San Diego, and uh, the bear cup was actually given to the San Diego Zoo. Yeah, that sounds wise. But it remains a mystery, though. I checked with the San Diego Zoo. They wouldn't return my calls. No evidence of Scrappy on the Internet anywhere. The mystery of Commodore Scrappy remains to be solved. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.